Across the country, violent crime is surging. In New York, murders are up 23%. In Philadelphia, 30%. In Tucson, 76%. What's causing it? The hardships and pent-up frustrations due to COVID? The defund the police movement and the toll it has taken on police officers? Or is there something else going on? Nobody knows more about policing and is better able to address these questions than Bill Bratton. A one-time street cop, Bratton has served as police commissioner twice in New York City, as well as stints in charge of the cops in Los Angeles and Boston. We'll talk to Bratton about the violent crime surge and his new book, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. And as a special bonus, you'll hear his take on the New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who he once worked for. And we'll listen to a clip from my interview this week with Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas about the Biden administration's new strategy to combat violent domestic extremism on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I am Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And Dan Clydman, uh, the Yahoo News editor-in-chief and regular Skullduggery co-host, is off this week. So Victoria and I will be carrying the load. This um, interview with Bratton uh, is pretty interesting, obviously, uh, trying to understand and dissect the uh, really sharp increases in murders and other violent crime is an important public policy issue. But it's also a pretty important political issue because this carries all sorts of uh, political freight, uh, especially for conservatives who undoubtedly are going to point to the defund the police movement as a primary cause of this surge. So it's really important for all of us to try to understand what's going on. Yeah, there is no more effective spokesperson for the police than Bill Bratton. And he's issuing this book and doing this interview, as you mentioned, in the midst of a crime surge, a a personal crime surge, private property and property crimes are actually down nationwide, which is kind of one of the kind of strange. Yeah, it's it seems counterintuitive during COVID when people really are suffering that yeah. property crime, robberies, for instance, or, you know, home invasions would be down while the violence escalates. Yeah. And it's also an important fact to understand that the defund the police movement hasn't actually defunded anything. So they're like a, the, the the budgets for police departments throughout the United States have actually gone up over the course of the last few years. There has been no city where the uh, where the budget of the police has been significantly diminished, uh, with with the possible exception of a, of a little bit of movement in Minneapolis, but it didn't have any sort well, of long term. Washington, D.C., the city council just approved a budget that is going to make pretty sharp cuts in the police and the police chief, Mayor Bowser's police chief, opposed them. So that it's it's having some effect. Right. But 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 important to remember that they just 
put that into place. So when the crime right. was going up, it's not like the police were all of a sudden defunded or anything. But but that being said, of course, there's no attrition. Not, they, don't yeah. don't forget attrition, which is real in many departments across the country. There there's no denying that the the uh, kind of America's understanding and approach to policing has been the subject of extensive debate and reconsideration over the course of the last year, especially since the uh, George Floyd killing, and that the progressive prosecutor movement has been picking up wins throughout cities uh, in the United States. And also, I would say we're also entering the summer of debate about this issue. Uh, Summer is when crime traditionally goes up. It's also when protests go up. And so uh, Bratton's book and his his kind of stepping onto the center stage to defend the police uh, could not be better timed. The police couldn't be luckier uh, in terms of their spokesperson. Bratton has a, an extraordinary reputation as a, a kind of a, a moderate force, yet he doesn't seem to really, in his book, be opening the door very much to much in the way of reform of current or contemporary policing in the United States. Well, we will definitely try and press him on that during the interview, but I just a sort of uh, a little tease, which I referred to in the cold open. Please stick around to the end of the interview when we get to some really uh, fascinating discussion of uh, Rudy Giuliani, who originally hired uh, Bratton as his police commissioner and then ditched him when he was getting too much uh, public attention and applause. Uh, But he's got some uh, fascinating insights. A couple of other uh, uh, issues we should mention. Uh, The Biden administration has now released its a national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. Um, I had an interview with um, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security um, on Monday about this. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, uh, look, the strategy in and of itself, I've done so many stories and covered so many government strategies. They tend to be pablum vanilla documents that pledge all sorts of strong action, but actually don't identify what those actions are. This strategy uh, fits that to the max. Uh, You'll see very little particulars other than we're going to coordinate better and we're going to share information more and we're going to get serious about doing something that we all know. But one thing that really struck me about this, you know, maybe this has been sort of, you know, said before, alluded to before. Homeland Security was created in the aftermath of 9-11. Its primary focus in terms of protecting the homeland from terrorism threats has always been on foreign-based uh, terror threats, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, you know, other radical jihadi movements. Uh, Mayorkas says explicitly in this interview that the number one threat to the homeland now is not Al-Qaeda, is not ISIS. It is violent domestic extremism, a little bit vaguely defined, but I thought that's a pretty significant um, statement by Mayorkas. 
Mike, you are 100% right. This report, as it was issued to the public, is kind of a retread of the standard issue toolkit that you might try to deal with any sort of, you know, violence in the United States, better information, more money, et cetera, et cetera. There's, it's, there's literally nothing new in this report. To be fair, it's the unclassified version of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We need, we need those classified leaks. So uh, exactly. the, uh, uh, the justice uh, department can go get phone records from reporters to find uh, out, you know, who's leaking them, <laughs> yeah. which Garland says is not going to happen anymore right an urgent yeah. plea from mike is to leak uh, to leak the, cl- the classified version to him yeah. um <laughs> and so hopefully you know what this is is a, a signal of the the urgency with which the administration takes this issue uh, and the importance they ascribe to it and behind the scenes they're you know got more fbi agents going undercover to to deal with these groups they're right increasing the resources to the investigations. And of course, they are monitoring social media. Yeah, something I get into with my orcas. And look, we talked about, we had uh, uh, Jana Winner on twice to talk about her amazing reporting about the Postal Service doing this kind of thing, taking it a step further, actually creating phony personas to engage with people on social media. My orcas says they're not going to do that at Homeland Security, but they are going to step up social media monitoring and bringing in outside government contractors to do that for them as well. You know, I think people might have some qualms about outside government contractors monitoring what you and I might post on social media, although presumably we're not going to post um, threats of violence um, that would get their attention. Yeah. And I'll also harken back to another interview that we did not too long ago with Mike German, um, who who really emphasized and explained the 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 sensitivities. And it might be part of what's driving the the uh, the kind of the generic quality of some of the messaging surrounding this uh, report. But there are a lot of sensitivities about targeting people based upon their beliefs rather than their actual violent actions. And so, you know, that's uh, probably a big part of the reason why the the report is written at such a high level of generality. They're walking a fine line politically on this because they know that, you know, once you start getting into trying to curb free speech, as repugnant as some of it might be, you're on dangerous uh, territory. Uh, Let's listen to just a few excerpts from the interview. Um, Eric, you want to play them? You releasing this new national strategy to combat uh, domestic violent extremism. How how serious is this threat? I consider it, and I think we consider it collectively, the most significant terrorism-related threat uh, impacting the homeland. More than the Islamic State, radical jihadism, al-Qaeda? Currently, yes. And I will say that I have seen in my experience at the Department of Homeland Security, the evolution of the threat. Certainly in 2009, 2010, we were focused on the foreign terrorist threat, the individual who might um, uh, cross our borders to do us harm here. Then that evolved to the homegrown radicalized extremist, an individual who was, for example, radicalized by the ISIS ideology. 
And now we're speaking of the domestic violent extremists. But one of the things you don't do in this strategy is name names. You don't identify any groups um, uh, or even any movements. And so it raises the question, how exactly are you defining what is a domestic terrorist threat or organization? It is really ideology neutral. It is apolitical. We are taking a look at ideologies that are extremist, um, that are based on false narratives, and it's the connectivity between an ideology and the act of violence. So whether it's a far-right extremism or it's the ideology that underlied the 2017 attack at the ballpark of uh, Republican legislators, what we are focused on is violence and, and not so much the particular ideology that underlies it. Um, you mentioned that we monitor, that we, the Department of Homeland Security monitors um, the social media postings of these actors. And that's something that some folks out there on the civil liberties side um, have questions about. How are you doing that? Um, who is doing that in the department? Do you keep tabs on the social media postings of individuals who express extremist views? Is there a database uh, that you've got in which you um, collect all that? We're very mindful of the sensitivities around civil liberties and the rights of privacy of residents of the United States. Well, I, I suppose uh, that will uh, reassure some folks. I'm not sure how many, uh, but uh, I think that speaks to my um, our broader critique that uh, there's a lot of pablum in the talk about domestic violent extremism right now and uh, not a lot of specifics. One thing which I did press him on even further is, you know, how much of the January 6th uh, assault on the Capitol, you know, grew out of this domestic violent extremism. And he kind of ducked the questions about January 6th, saying it's ongoing investigations and yeah. you know, can't really talk about it. It's a great interview and it's available on Yahoo News. So you can go uh, listen to the whole thing there. But um, I would say the, the other thing you can hear is how carefully he's phrasing everything and how how cautious he is about approaching all of these issues and appropriately obviously given the fact that we you know uh, given the civil liberties concerns he's he's being very very cautious about this what's important to remember is that programs like this in the United States that are focused on domestic organizations that have an ideology and a and a viewpoint that is protected by the First Amendment have a tradition of spinning out of control and turning into thought police rather than violence police. Mayorkas is clearly aware of that history and clearly concerned about that. And so at the highest level, they're trying to be very careful. What's interesting to see and know is as this program is implemented, how and if it spins out of control. Um, and all you have to do is kind of take a look at the the huge uh, blowback that's happened with the Postal Service social uh, media monitoring right. to understand how sensitive an issue this is. 
Absolutely. All right. Before we get to Bratton, uh, one more beat of shameless self-promotion on my part. Uh, Conspiracy Land, the new third season, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi has now uh, debuted. Episode one went live on Monday. Episode Two will go live on Thursday. We'll have two a week for the next month. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fascinating new details. And apparently it got the attention of CBSN, their CBS's live streaming platform, which I was on this morning talking about. And we have a brief clip from that interview. Eric, why don't you play that now? So in the first episode of the podcast that's been out, that's released right now, there's a friend of Khashoggi that you talked to and he says something along the lines of, you know, if anyone tells you that Khashoggi told them everything, that person's lying because he only told people what they needed to know. He never told anyone everything. I'm wondering after this podcast, do you think you know almost everything about the man, Jamal Khashoggi? <laughs> there's, there's certainly, yeah. Jamal Khashoggi was a fascinating figure. I say in the podcast, he could have been a character in a novel because he had many lives, many of them secret, many of them unknown to the world. He began as a Muslim Brotherhood enthusiast who championed the cause of Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan during the uh, Mujahideen War against the Soviet occupation. Then he went on to be a spin doctor for the Saudi government for many years. And as people who listen, and we'll learn in episode four, uh, he did secret missions for uh, the Saudis, uh, assigned no doubt by the former chief of Saudi intelligence who uh, hired him to work for the Saudi government. Um, so, you know, the portrayal of him as a dissident uh, it isn't quite right. In fact, that's a word that Khashoggi himself rejected for his entire life. But there's no doubt that towards the end, he became a fierce and fearless critic of Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, crown prince, and that's what led to his death. I hope that sort of teases people a little into checking out the podcast, because I think even if you've read every article on this case, uh, you will still be drawn in by this podcast. There are new things, and, and you got me hooked in the first episode. Well, I love the plug. Um, so, uh, please, uh, listen, listeners to Conspiracy Land, eight episodes over the next month. And, um, right now we've got our interview with Bratton coming up. So let's get to it. Okay. Yeah. We now have with us Bill Bratton, uh, the former, uh, Police chief in Los Angeles, Boston, and twice in New York. Commissioner Bratton, uh, welcome to Skullduggery. Happy to be with you. So you've got uh, this new book out, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. And it's uh, pretty timely because uh, we are in the midst of a uh, national debate about policing that uh, you know was sparked certainly by the George Floyd case last year and has continued into this year. And I want to start out, you um, write about this in your book. You have an op-ed pointing out that we've got a 
real crime problem in the United States right now. Increases in homicides across the country, 24% this year, and that's over last year, which had a 30% increase in some places. Philadelphia, 28%. Tucson, 76%. These are increases in homicides. What's going on out there, and what is the cause of this spike in homicides? Okay. Well, uh, timing is everything in life. So the book coming out at this time is perfect timing in light of everything that's going on, because in the book, there's a number of recommendations of things that have worked in the past that I think going forward will work again. So Peter Noble and my co-author and I spent a long time with this book, and the timing is perfect to address some of the questions that are out there, including the one that you just asked, what is the cause of what's happening right now? And that is the subject of great debate, that there's a lot uh, of people that would point to the COVID epidemic. I think that might have had some influence, but in the book, I talk a lot about uh, what I believe are the causes of crime, and the causes of crime of people. There are influences like COVID, the economy, poverty, racism, uh, et cetera, but the cause is still people. And I think what has happened for this sudden explosion is that there's been an effort underway for several years to reform policing, reform the criminal justice system. And I think the impact of those reform efforts, uh, the new district attorneys, uh, left-leaning district attorneys in many cities that the George Source Foundation has been funding around the country, some of their decisions not to prosecute minor crimes, something you know I'm very concerned with, quality of life type crimes, has uh, influenced the behavior of a lot of people. Uh, I think the prevalence of guns in this country is getting to be more and more of a problem. But with 400 million guns in the country, a Supreme Court decision about to come down in October where anybody can carry whatever they want anywhere, uh, wherever they want, that's going to be a problem. But we've already had significant loosening of gun laws in the last couple of years. Uh, we just have an awful lot of people in our society that just, in some respects, not under control. The controlling influence in the past has been the police. And our controlling influence has been diminished significantly, particularly as a result of these criminal justice reform efforts, which ironically, if you please support some of them, but some of them are so far out there that uh, they well, are. Well, what's so far out there? G give us a specific example of one you think that is actually causing, fueling this crime. Let me give, let me give you an example, and I'll speak to my home state, New York. Uh, the legislature, in the middle of the night, without consulting judges, police, or prosecutors, uh, came forth uh, about 2018 and 19 with bail reform and criminal justice reform. Bail reform was needed in this state, many states around the country, no arguing against that. But unlike every other state in the country here, they did not allow judges to take into consideration public safety, the idea that this person might be a risk if let out on the street. Judges are not allowed to take that into consideration. They can only take into consideration the offense and the bail reform laws in New York were loosened so that uh, there are very few crimes in which you can keep somebody in jail. Many of them, you have to let them go immediately. Car theft, for example. If you're arrested for car theft, you cannot be incarcerated. You immediately bail on that offense. Judge has no discretion to keep you. Uh, I just did an op-ed about what the legislature here in uh, Albany is debating this week that they're rushing to pass before they adjourn the session for the summer. Uh, two of the reforms that they want to put in place is no-knock warrants that uh, even those that are issued by, well, all no-knock warrants are issued by a judge after review. 
But here the legislature would require that if you have a no-knock warrant, that you have to knock on the door, announce your presence, and wait 30 seconds before entering, effectively giving the criminal time to get rid of the evidence you might be looking for, or if you are looking for an armed and dangerous felon, time to arm themselves to await your arrival coming through that door. So there's an example of reform gone absolutely crazy. Additionally, juveniles who are in the state uh, under the age of 17 uh, would no longer uh, be questioned by police when arrested for a crime. Imagine that, you arrest somebody for a crime and you don't have the opportunity to try and question them, even with a lawyer or parent present as is required by law. Uh, that to me is bending over too backwards in the uh, area of reform. So reform has played a role in this in terms of lessening uh, the ability to deal with offenders and also the ability, even upon conviction, to punish them. The virus has influenced this uh, in the sense that uh, many courts shut down so that you didn't have trials. And since we weren't putting people in jail or keeping them in jail, uh, they're back out in the street. So we have some people in New York that have been arrested four or five times on gun charges and back out in the street and have never served any time uh, while they're waiting trial. So there's all these factors that are compressing. And I think what's going on in New York is uh, repeated in many cities around the country is evidenced by the fact that every major city, with few exceptions, is experiencing significant crime, including shootings and homicides. Uh, Commissioner, um, you write in the book that uh, you you were honored uh, to be in the Rose Garden in 1994 when President Clinton, after he signed the uh, the crime bill, which put 100,000 cops on the street, you know, but also uh, did some things that that uh, were controversial in in retrospect, uh, some of the disparities in the sentencing laws um, and, and some other uh, provisions uh, in that bill. Um, Congress uh, today is considering um, p- uh, police reform legislation um, uh, that in, in, in the George uh, Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, uh, including banning chokeholds, uh, demilitarizing the police, um, reforming qualified immunity, if uh, not getting rid of it altogether. Um, they're, they're not um, passing anti-crime legislation. Do you think Congress is, is going in the wrong direction here? Uh, do you support the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act? Um, are you for uh, getting rid of um, qualified immunity? Okay, before answering the current situation, let's go back to where you started, 1994, the crime bill. Crime bill, uh, in addition to those 100,000 more cops, also had the assault weapons ban for 10 years, had significant money for research, which is always desperately needed. One of the problems we have today is we really don't have good statistical information to analyze uh, is crime up, is crime down. It, it's, it's all over the place because we just don't have good research and uh, statistics, if you will. And what the crime bill is oftentimes erroneously faulted for, because there was money in there to build additional prisons, doesn't take into the context of the time. 1990, the worst crime year in the history of America. Worst crime year, New York City. 2,243 people murdered, 5,000 shot in the street, affirmation crimes, and around the country that was being echoed around the country. So you have to take it into the context But two years, three years before 1990, things were getting so bad in the 80s that Congress, including the Black Caucus in Congress, passed a series of bills that increased penalties 
particularly for drug-related offenses, and particularly for cocaine. And Mandatory cocaine minimums. Exactly. And for powdered cocaine and crack cocaine, they were different. And the crack cocaine impact had phenomenal impact on minority populations. Powder cocaine was something that the whites were using more than the blacks. So this idea that the crime bill somehow or another led to mass incarceration, sorry, it happened about four or five years before the crime bill and was the residual effect of some of what was going on in the 80s. So context, flash forward now to where we are today with the George Floyd bill. Uh, context, as that bill was being proposed uh, after the death of Mr. Floyd, uh, America was just starting to emerge out of the coronavirus crisis, but was just starting to come into a crime crisis. That because 25 years in New York City, crime went down every year since the early 1990s. And by 2018, there were 90% fewer murders in New York, 80% fewer homicides. Prison population in New York State was down by 40%. Prison population in New York City jails was down by over 60%. So the crime issue was under control. But now, as the George Floyd bill is being debated in Congress, that the tide, if you will, of the pendulum is starting to swing the other way a little bit. Why? Well, the horrendous shootings and murder rates in just about every major city in the country. So that's some of the uh, slowdown of the passage of the George Floyd bill. There are many good things in that bill. Uh, in terms of, one, the issue of uh, a national repository of records of officers who've been fired so that they can't get hired someplace else again. That's something uh, that is very widely supported by particularly police chiefs, some opposition from unions. Chokehold, uh, chokehold, I have a lot of experience with that issue in New York City. The devil is in the details in terms of trying to describe a chokehold that would have national implications. That's going to be very, very tough. On the issue of uh, qualified immunity, I'm supportive of the idea of some reform of that. The idea that uh, qualified immunity, the way it's currently structured at the federal level, is so strict that it's almost impossible in many instances to effectively find an officer at fault. Uh, but it is an incredibly uh, complex issue. I would guarantee that 99 out of 100 people don't understand it. And the one person out of 100 that does is going to have a hard time explaining it. I reduce it down to two words, lawful and reasonable. Was the action the office was engaged in lawful? And were his actions reasonable? And it's also understood that it's not a law. It's basically court interpretations over the years. So there's a lot of good stuff in the Floyd Bill. And I'm hoping they might put some more in, including money for training. The problem in American policing right now is we just don't train our cops very well. We really don't for the complexities. It was bad enough when we just dealt with crime and disorder in the 90s. Now we have to deal with a multitude of new issues that uh, nobody even thought of back in the 90s, a lot of it involving technology, cybercrime, and the many manifestations of that. So that bill right now, unfortunately, is stalled. And I say unfortunately because I think it would go a long way toward beginning to establish trust once again, between law enforcement and communities. Is everybody going to get what they're looking for in that bill? No, but I think most people will get something. So we need to try and find common ground. And the George Floyd bill might be the common ground to try and build on. Much the same as the 1994 crime bill was common ground that everybody found something in that bill to agree on back in those days. And it began the reduction of crime for the next 20 years in America.
if I can circle back to the, uh, you, you had, uh, I think, cataloged at least three forms of uh, progressive policing reform laws that you feel have contributed, at least in part, to the increase in crime over the course of the last two years. And I, I want to circle back on them because you mentioned uh, no-knock warrants, uh, being able to question juveniles and the bail reform movement. And the reason I want to circle back on it and maybe is is because at least two of those no knock warrants and juveniles are, are, are have hasn't really you know kind of spread throughout the United States. It's it's only happened in a, a few places. I think um, the juvenile questioning is only just recently in Illinois, and and the no knock warrants hasn't really the the kind of ban or restrictions on that isn't really extensive. That's correct. So my my question is, given the fact that violent personal crime is going up across the country and going up in cities where there hasn't been bail reform, where there hasn't been changes to juvenile questioning, and where there haven't been changes to no-knock warrants. How can you say that that is driving this problem? I was speaking to New York State, if we go back to my opening comment. Yeah. And that is that is the issue. We have 50 states. We have 3,400 counties. We have God knows how many cities. We have 18,000 police departments. So trying to find the generic cause it's like a doctor dealing with 18,000 different patients. Uh, as a police leader, having worked in many cities, I can tell you Los Angeles is very different than Boston. They're both very different than New York. And so the dealing with crime in those three cities, while I could use some common medicines, I had to basically uh, develop prescriptions for my particular patient. And what's going on in America right now is we have a lot of very ill patients for a lot of very different reasons. And while there's some generic, and some of those generic is this sense that on the part of the police, the police feel very much not trusted any longer. Uh, although ironically, a poll out earlier this week showed that the approval rating for police have gone up from 61 to 68%. So that's why I talk about that pendulum that was going this way is starting to stutter to a, a little slower pace. So you have to, uh, while trying to find the common denominators, it becomes difficult in some respects, and you have to look at different cities. But there's been the demoralization of American police because of, in many American cities, you have this, uh, what I call the source factor, the open society of district attorneys who are well-intended, this idea of criminal justice reform, trying to find alternatives to prison for a lot of young men and women and uh, that's uh, something that uh, we're supportive of. But there's a tendency to sometimes forget, unfortunately, in our society, there's a lot of bad people. The people are doing those shootings and doing those murders. And the current, again, I'll speak to New York, and it's repeated in my, from my experience in Chicago, Baltimore, and elsewhere. There's a real reluctance to put people uh, in prison. And uh, that's something that's going to have to be addressed, particularly now as the courts begin to reopen after being closed for almost a year, and then we start dealing with the backlog. But the good news also, and I mentioned two figures earlier to you, that the criminal justice reforms that so many people are looking for, that we were putting those into place in New York City, and I can speak to that, and that's why crime was down by the percentages it was. But also the prison populations were down. In terms of Rikers, in 1994, the population was 22,000 people a day. It's now down about 4,000. State prison is down from a high of 56,000, I think, down into the 30,000 somewhat here in New York State. Uh, and a lot of that was reflected in a safer city. Things were going pretty well in New York. 
And then they decided they wanted to reform it even more. And since that reform package has been put in, crime has begun to go up dramatically. One of the things to also, something we started tracking in 94 in New York, was not tracked very closely in the United States, is shootings. That because of the success of trauma centers, because they have so much experience now, uh, murders are basically, while you focus on that number, I look at the shootings, because the shootings basically are the more accurate number in the sense of growth, because so many people are saved, fortunately, in trauma centers. So the murder rate is basically uh, offset by the success in saving shooting victims. So that's why we in New York started tracking votes to have a more uh, accurate count of what was going on. Good, good news coming out of all of this is that there will be reform, but I would argue that uh, uh, particularly the defund, when you're looking for what, what's going on, the defund the police movement, abolish the police movement, why do you not expect that police morale would plummet when you have open advocacy? It was a great political hashtag that drove a lot of pol political policy uh, about a year or so ago. Why do you not think that would not have a demoralizing effect on police? Because a lot of what is going on around the country is police are stepping back from enforcement of a lot of minor crime. And I am a strong adherent of the need to both enforce serious crime and broken windows quality of life at the same time. You don't need to arrest for quality of life offense. You can admonish, you can cite. But in New York City, 2018-19, we were at record lows for citations, summonses, arrests as well as uh, record lows for crime. Commissioner, as probably America's best-known police official, what went through your mind when you watched the video of Derek Chauvin putting his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes? number of thoughts. One, couldn't believe what I was watching. The idea of that look on that officer's face and the, uh, the, the cries that uh, were coming from Mr. Floyd, as well as in the background, hearing the, the group of people there that they're trying to uh, encourage the police to, to let them up. Uh, uh, you know, as a police leader who has sought to bring reform and better training, having gone through as recently as my time in LA as chief, I had to go through all the academy training to become chief of police on use of force and how to apply it. Uh, could see no need for what was going on in that circumstance. And so it was uh, revulsion. Uh, it was just disbelief that this could be happening. And why is this happening? And uh, so I have, along with, I think, just about everybody else in America, with few exceptions, uh, a satisfaction that uh, the murder charge and the conviction of uh, uh, Mr. Chauvin, former officer Chauvin, was very, very correct. But, but that said, you can understand how some people about many people looking at that um, uh, saw not just an individual bad apple in Derek Chauvin, but something about policing and it and the interactions with people of color that led to that incident and many others like it. And the question, I guess, is what is it about the police culture that allowed that to happen? Well, I speak to this extensively in the book, looking at that history and the police culture you're talking about. Uh, in terms of there's nothing about the police culture that led to that. A lot of what we have is uh, the laws that are created by politicians, police departments that are controlled by politicians. Police departments don't operate independent of political leadership in terms of the laws we're expected to enforce 
police chiefs reporting to mayors. So the culture you're talking about, uh, every department has its own culture, every community has its own culture. Uh, and in terms of the 800,000, approximately 800,000 police in America, are there some who should not be police? Certainly, hundreds if not thousands who should not be police officers. But to define the culture of policing through the actions of Derek Chauvin, sorry, not going to accept it, uh, not going to, uh, much the same as are we going to uh, define uh, the culture of the black community, or Latino community, as defined by Willie Horton, as the Republicans attempted to do back in the late 1980s by putting that black face up in the middle of a presidential campaign. Uh, no, you can't define a profession, you can't define an organization by the actions of one officer. And what you then do to do is understand, try to understand how did that officer, however, get to where he was on that day and felt feel comfortable doing what he was doing. And uh, so again, this remember, it wasn't just him. He was surrounded by, you know, four other police, three other police he officers. Was surrounded by yeah. three other junior officers who did nothing on the job him. for three days. So again, this is part of the, uh, the, the Floyd bill, which will be potentially beneficial, which will effectively put into across the country Law, laws, if you will, uh, that will require officers to step forward because it goes into those 18,000 different departments, their policies, procedures, and training in terms of what, what to do in those types of situations. I'm not, defending, I'm not defending the actions of those three officers at all. They're going to be tried eventually, and we'll see yeah. what comes out of those trials. But just one more beat on this. You you were talking about the no-knock warrant issue and how uh, New York is going to change the law and make it more difficult. You're familiar with what happened in Louisville with Breonna Taylor, right. a woman who wasn't even the target of the police, ended up getting shot as a result of an encounter from a no-knock warrant. Um, doesn't that raise questions about whether no-knock warrants need to be curbed in some way so incidents like that Certainly. don't happen. And, and legislatures around the country are attempting to address that, which is appropriate. Uh, in the George Floyd discussions, they're attempting to address that. So anytime something goes wrong, or particularly when it goes tragically wrong, the expectation is that you will attempt to find out what happened. Can it be corrected going forward? Can the training be adjusted? If the law was at fault, if the rules and regulations were at fault, then change those. So out of each of these tragedies, and, and let's face it, out of uh, Mr. Floyd's tragic death, uh, it, it really uh, uh, accelerated uh, the Black Lives Matter movement to the extent that uh, it was the most phenomenal change, societal change, in, in many respects, almost the history of our country in terms of the speed of change in trying to address the issues that were exposed during that incident. Uh, Com Commissioner, um, two other cases that you deal with extensively in the book um, are one that you were intimately involved with, uh, the uh, death of uh, Eric Garner and the other, and the other one, um, Michael Brown and Ferguson. Um, my, my sense is that um, those cases uh, you find um, and the reaction to them deeply frustrating. And this goes to the kind of uh, trust issue um, that I think you talk about. And that is that it, it's it seems as if we sort of settle on these narratives of what happened and those narratives which the media picks up shapes public perceptions in ways that I think you think 
have been harmful. It sounds like in both of those cases, you disagree with the narrative that's really out there and, and, and the facts that they're, that they're based on. Can you go through those two cases and tell us uh, what you think um, happened as opposed to- No, what because most- both those cases are so extensively reviewed and you would not have time to do it. I do it in the book. I would suggest in the interest of time, read the book in terms of uh, what went on there. But in the case of Ferguson, there was a U.S. uh, civil rights investigation in that case. They came up with findings we discussed in the book. In the case of uh, Mr. Garner's tragic death in Staten Island, similarly, go into a lot of detail there, which was also investigated by uh, the U.S. government adopted not to uh, issue a finding in that case. But the point you're making is that uh, those extraordinarily newsworthy cases, because of the nature of the events and the coverage of them, that do determine and uh, require extensive evaluation. And isn't it the frustration that we all have at the moment that the Congress of the United States won't evaluate the actions on January 6th? Because we're so used to now having, whether it's the death of Fiona, the death of George Floyd, the death of Mr. Ghana, extensively reviewed both in the public by the media, but also in the various courts of law and examination bodies that we have in place. So those two cases uh, have been uh, looked at every which way from Sunday, and I discussed them in the book. So I don't know the point you're trying to make, and happy happy to speak to that point if you want to explain it. Well, it's it's the point that you make in the book, uh, it seems to me, which is, is which is the polarization uh, in our politics and our culture now uh, has has led us to jump to conclusions about what happened in these cases that that can be harmful in terms of uh, the trust between uh, police and, and communities. Exactly. Well, it's, it's the, we have an expression that I think I quote in the book, actually, that the first story is never the last story. In the many years I worked in policing, I can't tell you a single story that ended the way it started in terms of the first round of information. And in the world we live in today, uh, because of the immediacy of seeing things, and then the constant repetition of those things, whether it's through videos, et cetera, that there is a potential to draw conclusions very, very quickly. And it's one thing I've learned over time through exhaustive investigations of cases I've been involved in, that the first story is never the last story. And so that going forward, uh, we will benefit by the fact of body cameras, the pervasiveness of cameras everywhere. But that's only a tool to be used in the gathering of evidence and helping to arrive at conclusions. And the polarization in the country at the moment, whether it's political, whether it's racial, is in fact strictly problematic. And in the book, I speak a lot about lessons I learned early on that I think have benefited me in terms of the way I look at situations. And it's the comment uh, by Sweet Alice in Los Angeles about you see us and the idea of seeing each other. And if there's something positive that will come out of uh, these deaths, if it will, is that we see why the black community in particular, or the uh, brown community, Latinos, why they don't have trust in police, why they are fearful of police in some instances. And what, in other words, to see what those grievances are all about. Similarly, uh, going back to your point earlier about uh, crime going up in the country, my comment about Please kind of stepping back, and you can understand the stepping back at this time in the sense of defund the police, uh, reform the police without uh, input from the police and the courts, et cetera, that uh, we're at a, an inflection point that it's a real opportunity 
But at the same time, it can also set us back if we don't address it uh, correctly by trying trying to find common ground. I, I just have one quick follow up on the, the point about police stepping back. Um, how concerned are you? Uh, I, I have uh, teenage uh, children um, and I hear their friends talking about these issues um, and so, sort of was shocked to hear the way in the wake of the uh, in the George Floyd um, killing to hear the way they young people talk about uh, police officers these days. I'm sure you're familiar with the term ACAB, all cops are bastards, which kids just rolls off their tongues. Um uh, talking about and, and there's a lot of truth to this, but you know when they you hear them talking about policing, the first thing they say is that you know American policing is built on the foundation of of uh, of slavery, um, and uh, you don't hear them talk about uh, say a lot of positive things about uh, police officers these days. How much of a concern is that to you? Because you know it's going to have a, an impact on recruiting new generations of of cops going forward i mean and how do you change those perceptions among young people well first off we have to understand how they arrived at them in the first place i think uh myself and my colleagues my former colleagues who are still in the business and others who like myself have left it that uh we were struck by in the demonstrations involving tens of millions of people that previous demonstrations around the issue of race tended to involve majority of Blacks or Latinos, uh, and this instance that uh, those two minority populations in our country were joined by a large majority of whites of all ages, but in particular, the most uh, uh, active, if you will, the most assertive, seemed to be that younger generation, uh, whether it's millennials or whatever the new term is for the generation coming behind them. And uh, where that anger toward the police came from was we just don't understand that. My own sense is that much the same as I was shaped by television growing up in the 50s and 60s, and that's my desire to be a police officer. The TV shows of the 50s and 60s, Dragnet, uh, One Adam 12, the cops were portrayed in a very different way than they came to be portrayed in the 90s and now into the 21st century. And so this generation is an, is an imagery generation that uh, for the last 20 years with the advent of the smartphone in 2006, and the ability to effectively see these images happening in Ferguson, Missouri, that nobody ever heard of, but then playing over and over again on the national scale. So some of these attitudes, I think, are shaped less maybe by personal encounters in their own lives uh, and maybe more by what they are seeing and the empathy that they're feeling. One of the good things about our society, the younger generations, whether it's my son or my grandkids, there is much more racial consciousness in a good way, uh, different, I think, than generations before them. And I think that's also fueling some of this in the, that they're uh, not mimicking black anger toward the police, but in the same time, empathetic about black anger toward the police. And how we resolve that is going to be the challenge going forward. How do we reform police in the sense that we better train them. One of the good things happening in policing that's not widely acknowledged is is probably been uh, uh, becoming more diverse than populations in other professions and indeed in the country. New York City now is a majority minority police department, 1,400 Muslim officers, for example. So the police that we're ask, asking to reform are increasingly made up of members of the community that are demanding those reforms. So that's a positive. And in the book, what I try to uh, talk about is the arc of policing 
where we've gone over these 50 years. And while in some respects, uh, we're nowhere near we, where we want to be, as this discussion is indicating, but compared to where we were, like in the Boston Police Department, 2,800 cops, only 55 white in a city that was 25% minority. And now that's, that department is almost uh, a minority, majority. City now is a black mayor, has a black district attorney. Uh, uh, that would have been unheard of in the, uh, in the city that I policed in the 1970s. So I'm somebody that tends to, in this rubric's cube of issues we're dealing with, try to find as many positives as possible while always being conscious of the negatives. And going forward, it's uh, I'm discouraged at some things, but uh, more than encouraged with others. So that anger that those uh, young people are feeling, uh, I think I would hope that it's not because of personal experiences, other than maybe in some of the demonstrations where we've clearly seen on uh, some of the TV shows that things got out of hand. But going forward, uh, I'm still optimistic or cautiously optimistic that we can get through this as we've gotten through other generational crises, whether it was the uh, anti-war movement of my era, the early 70s, uh, some of the other eras of uh, uh, racial uh, disturbance in our history. So we'll uh, just have to all try to find some common ground where we can all try, try to get together, as you and I, of the four of us are here talking about this issue. Let me ask you about somebody you write um, quite a bit about in your book, uh, who uh, named you uh, for the first time as police commissioner in New York, uh, who you had a famously contentious relationship with over time, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, you write in the book, um, who he is now, a pariah, a caricature, is a corruption of who he was then personally flawed, divisive, and sometimes vicious, but an effective and rational actor. What happened to Rudy Giuliani? Uh, there were some who feel it might be a drinking problem. Uh, some who feel that it might be the marital difficulties that uh, 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 he went through in several instances. Some of it might be financial, brought on by some of those other issues. Uh, nobody really knows that, uh, but he is a very different person in some respects than the person I dealt with, the, the leader I dealt with. I had many issues with Rudy in terms of the vindictiveness, the meanness, uh, the uh, attitudes toward blacks in particular. Uh, that, But the, the person that we see today, is, is he really is a caricature, as evidenced by all the caricatures that are done of him. Uh, Saturday Night Live has a field day with him uh, every couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, but do you even recognize the guy at this point? I, mean, I, do, not, I do not, because it, uh, 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 even the physical changes and manifestations, he's uh, changed so much since the person I knew in 19. And we, we all change with aging, but right. uh, Rudy uh, changed dramatically physically, but also in behavior. Uh, and in terms of the support of the, you know, the, the positions he's taken, uh, uh, during the recent election. Uh, I don't get it because he was a guy that stood for law and order uh, and was a U.S. attorney. Uh, and, you know, he's as, as many facets of him as I was exposed to, so much of what we're seeing now, he's not recognizable. Yeah, and and uh, I I think I read this uh, maybe in your book, but uh, you were on the cover of Time magazine as the police commissioner of New York, and uh, and that's what really frayed your relationship with Rudy Giuliani. That was that was probably uh, 
almost the final straw because we had been uh, death by a thousand knives that the year earlier, he had decimated the uh, police department's uh, press office, including my, my deputy commissioner for public information, John Miller, and uh, demanding that the size of the police press office uh, be cut more than in half so that it was smaller than what the mayor had in his office symbolically. But that took 18 very dedicated police officers who were working very hard and effectively disciplined them for a peak that uh, the mayor was unhappy that my office was doing a better job with the press than his office was doing. And uh, so there was those tensions that had built up over the, I worked for him for 27 months. There was that tension building between his staff, my staff, failure on my part. I talk openly at the failure of, uh, in my second book, Collaborator Parish, I have eight principles of leadership. And one of them is as a leader to stay in the headlights of the leader that you're working for. In the case of Udi, uh, I not only didn't stay in the headlights, I went over the guardrail, crashed into the gully, spun over and flipped over. <laughs> in fact, uh, didn't you uh, actually uh, have the opportunity to, to kind of nudge him off the cover of Time magazine? With- <laughs> uh, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a collaborative effort. The, uh, the, <laughs> seriously, the uh, people working on Time magazine on that article had formerly worked uh, in the media in New York City and hated them. And so uh, they they and understood what Moody was trying to do as it related to uh, going after the police department, me and my people, this idea of this unwillingness to take credit for having selected, selected a team that was producing what he had promised, reduced crime. So John Chimney, myself, Maple, uh, John Miller, all these people, the media in New York got that. They understood what was happening. And they didn't particularly like because they were very close to John Miller and to John Timoney. And uh, I had quite a group of people around me who were by and large very respected and liked by the press because, one, they were accessible. Two, they were New York Damon Runyon-type characters (laughs) hanging out of the lanes. And uh, (laughs) we were pretty much liked. And Rudy and his people were very disliked. So uh, the uh, question was put to me, uh, do you want the mayor in the picture? And if we have to delay taking the picture, it might not happen. And I suspected that if I made the overture to the mayor about this picture, one, either I would be out of the picture, or two, there would be no picture. <laughs> so so I, make no, I make no apologies for it. I was basically yeah. that, that my exit uh, from the department was... Uh, uh, it was quite clear that I was going to be exited from the department. <laughs> it, it, it's worth knowing. I mean, your subtitle is a memoir of community race and the arc of policing in America, which should probably also include some reference to the importance of PR in, uh, in <laughs> well, policing that, as well. So, I think uh, John Miller uh, makes a joke of it, unfortunately, after the, uh, the, the bombing. My, my first day of retiring the second time was when they had the first bombing since 9-11 in New York City. And uh, John uh, joked about uh, and, and that uh, concluding conclusion of that chapter on terrorism. Uh, O'Neill said he thought he saw me walking away from the back of the crowd. And Miller says to O'Neill, no, that wouldn't be Brad. And he never walked away from any camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, one, of, yeah. one, of the things, one of the ways I was different than a lot of my colleagues, particularly early on, uh, was one, uh, I'm comfortable dealing with the press that uh, enjoy the give and take of the spontaneity of it. But I also understand, I don't have a, a budget uh, for public relations affair, you know, in terms of having worked in the private sector for many years. 
I understand the budgets we have to basically uh, promote ourselves. Uh, in policing, you have to promote yourself through your actions, through your leadership, and to effectively capture as much airtime as you can. Because if you're not capturing it, somebody else is going to be uh, basically uh, attacking you. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why uh, Giuliani uh, really and his people are so hostile to us because we're sucking up so much of the oxygen. And uh, in my case, I think uh, throughout my career, while I've never been shy of getting in front of the cameras, I also uh, always make room for others to get in front of the cameras. And I'm, I'm known for that. And one of the reasons I think I have so many people that enjoy working for me and with me is they get their share of the credit appropriately. And I should say, some of us do remember uh, John Miller and New York City cops and FBI agents all hanging out at Elaine's with plenty of reporters around. So uh, it was a moment moment in uh, law enforcement. It was a special time in the city, probably not to be repeated again. Uh, Commissioner, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, Fascinating talk, fascinating book, The Profession. Nice talking with all of you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Good talking. Take care. care.